Welcome to another edition of Steve's Speed Shop. Steve's Speed Shop is brought to you by WarrantyWise, the UK's best warranty provider. Get a quote from them today at warrantywise.co.uk. We're brought to you by West Coast Motorcycles. They're in the business of pre-loved Harley-Davidson motorcycles. They've been at it for 35 years, and you can find them on Facebook at West Coast Motorcycles. And we're brought to you by Mini Sports. Anything and everything for the classic Mini since 1967. Tim Beavis is the guy behind a new book called Admission 7 and 6. It's quite a story. He went along to an auction, I think it might have been Bonhams, or it was probably Bonhams, and he bought a box of slides, and the slides were photographs of motorsport from the 1960s. The kind of things that you don't see, the kind of photographs, candid photographs of what goes on, at a race meeting that you simply would not get today. He's done it all himself, he's collected cars, he's been an instructor at Silverstone, you know, that sort of thing. He raced a Lancia Fulvia HF um, in circuit racing, not in rallying. And uh, he's a great guest, really good storyteller. My guest, the author, it's a collection of photographs, the man behind a new book you should buy called Admission 7 and 6, my guest, Tim Beavis. So this book, tell us about it. Admissions 7 and 6. Well, it goes back some time. I um, went to a, an early car auction at Charterhouse Deeds um, in Sherbourne, near where I live, in Dorset, with my son, who was about six years old at the time, who was into everything, and it was in a place called Toy Barn. So you can imagine how stressful it was if you got a kid there. What kind of auction? A, cl- a it was regular a classic, no, classic car right. with automobilia and stuff. And looking back at the auction catalogue now, probably I should have bought some of the cars, but that's another story. Um, but I, I had gone seeing these slides with an interest in photography um, that sort of stemmed back from my father and enjoying a bit myself. Looked at the slides, found the lot, looked through them, saw some of the pictures that you see in the book and thought, hmm, this is quite good. There's some. The first one that stands out is a Well, hold on a sec. Mm. When you're looking at slides at a, a sort of auto-jumble or something like that, how are you looking at them? Are you holding, holding them up, them up, to, up the to the light? Well, they were in a sheet. Well, so they're, they're tiny. Yeah, but they're in a big sheet. You can hold them up to the light, and you can still see... My eyesight was a lot better then. didn't have any glasses, but you can still see what it is, and you can see the content. You know that there's Hill there, there's Clark there, and those people. You suddenly think, OK, this is actually quite good, and you see things written on them, the date... 1962, Well, that's a good thing. We should perhaps explain, most of the people who listen to Speed Shop are men of a certain age. <laughs> Let's be Fair honest. <laughs> Let's be honest, like ourselves. Um, and they will completely understand what a slide is. Mm. But, of course, the advantage of a slide is that it would be in a sort it's of a, a cardboard card, frame. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you could write something on it, couldn't you? But, yeah, and, that, and a lot of them did have some kind of annotation on. So that helped a lot. In certain things, it was right, OK, we'll go back, that's the race meeting. And some things, do you think, no idea who that is, but right. he'd written on it. For instance, Jack Lewis was, was one of them. So I, I saw these slides, looked through them, thought, they're pretty good. And they were guided at something really low. So I thought, I'm not going to have to spend a lot of money. Um, but it turned out somebody else had obviously spotted them, yeah. and they were after it. And I tried to hide all the good stuff under the bottom in this big box of stuff, as you would. <laughs> <laughs> Be clever and hide it. Um, and well, all's fair in love and auctions. Exactly. Uh, well, you should know better than most. So 
it wasn't it wasn't guy that was no. doing the auction. No, it was a oh god. Because hold on a sec, I should explain that the guy is often an auctioneer of, in that sort of world as well. It was I can't remember his name. Torture and gamekeeper. Indeed. <laughs> Guilty as charged. <laughs> well, Bearing in mind the state of the classic world at the moment, let's not <laughs> let's not drift into that. Just because I used to work for Coys, people people buying mm-hmm. things that they also sold or selling things that they also bought. Yes. At the end of the day, right? So it, it, we'll, we'll carry on in just a sec. But if you listen to this show, you'll realise that that it's the diversionary bits that are the most interesting. The fun bits. That stuff that's happened, people forget that at the end of the day, a Ferrari two hundred and fifty GTO or a low-light E-Type, or a Lotus Cortina, is a second-hand car. Mm-hmm. It's the second-hand car trade. And it's populated by Arthur Daly's. Yeah, they wear a nicer suit. They're, some, some, they're suits from Huntsman, not Dunanco or whatever, right? But they're just... A lot of the people in that world are just jumped up Arthur Daly's. It, I'm always... I'm always surprised. Because it's... Do you not think, Guy, it seems to be cyclical that... I know it's difficult for you to comment because, you know, you're very active in that world and, and, and obviously, um, you know, would wish to continue to be so. But do you not find it surprising in the way that I do that people are surprised when second-hand car dealers turn out to be a bit, dodgy, or a bit dodgy or a lot dodgy? It surprises me massively that people are prepared to go into that world, wade into those shark-infested waters, completely unprepared. You're not going to go and buy a house without talking to your lawyer about exchanging contracts. Mm. You wouldn't go and buy fine art without talking to someone who knew what they were doing. Well, and I, we I know think we know about our yeah, cars. Yeah. yeah, I know an art dealer, and that um, that world is just as treacherous. <laughs> you know, right? So you know, risk ridden. You know. The Andy Warhol thing, obviously the, everybody knows the name Andy Warhol and he's probably the most famous artist of the 20th century. But one of the things that people know is that he didn't... This is a diversion, isn't it? One of the things that... It is relevant. One of the things, I think. One of the things that uh, people know about Warhol is the factory. You know, it, it, the idea that other... It wasn't his idea. He stole it from other people just like everything else that he did. But he was a clever thief. Um, and he didn't make most of it. Other people made it. But... Can you imagine this in the classic car world or the classic bike world? If you send a piece of work to the Andy Warhol Foundation to be authenticated and they don't think it's an original, they destroy it. No, that's a hell of a risk, isn't it? Can you imagine? You, you want somebody to authenticate your, your Maserati race car or your Lamborghini Miura SV or whatever it is that you think may or may not be the real thing. So you send it off to them and they go... That you get a call and they go, no, it's not real, so we crushed it. <laughs> <laughs> that happened with recently with Jaguar, didn't it? Well, with it's the, the replica. I don't think we guys should talk start, about it. Guy's yeah. going to start squirming in his chair in a minute. <laughs> it, it is because it's because we're in that world and we all know people that are, you know, a good friend of mine in the replica Jaguar business, a very good friend of mine in the replica Jaguar business. And who would have thought, as he said, that. Companies like Bentley and Jaguar and Mercedes-Benz and others would say, oh, yeah, you know those cars that we made back in the day? We're going to carry on making them. Mm. What do you mean you're going to carry on making them? It's not the same company. Sir William's not there anymore. It's like, you know, it's like, and they're like, no, 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 we are Jaguar and we made that car or we are Bentley and we made that car and its, it's chassis number is ends in 714, so we're going to make 715, 716, 71, you know. 
It's kind. Of, who'd have thought that they'd do that? Nobody. Nobody not, thought. Not they'd... even the Jaguar no. of twenty years ago thought that was going to happen. No, because we know they helped. Proteus, they helped. Um, and if they did, and if they needed a car for some sort of demo or photo shoot or track test, they'd be on. It was all very pally. They'd be on the blow, right. wouldn't they? Yeah, they don't want to risk a real D type or a real, or they haven't got one. Or, or as as we know, and we talked about this before. Sorry, Tim. That's right. <laughs> as we've <laughs> invite the guy in to come on the show and start talking to. Guy about something that's completely related, Jagged. but I think pertinent and interesting. Back in the day, museum exhibits didn't used to run. Correct. Exactly. Mm. I I did a piece uh, oh, how long ago now? Ten, twelve years ago for Auto Italia about mid-engine Lambos, and two of the cars were museum cars. Guess what? We got to the track. The only car that ran was the modern one, the one that was brand new. That we were the two that we were comparing. We had a we had a Murcia Lago, um, uh, a Diablo, and a Countach. The Diablo and the Countach both completely refused. This one started, the other one just sat there and went, "No, no, abs- It looked great. <laughs> it arrived on the low order. They winched it off, and then it was like it's sort of electrical stuff sort of came on and went off again and flickered and that sort of stuff. But nothing. No, museum exhibits didn't because they didn't have to, did they? No, no. And if you wanted an old racing car for a um, for a film or something like that, then you mock one up on a on a van, a pickup chassis or something like that, didn't you? You didn't get a real one, because no, unless, unless you're making the Italian job. <laughs> yeah. No, hold on. No, because um, why? Why do you say the Italian job? Because they did chuck an E-type down a cliff. The car that got chucked down the cliff, over the cliff, that was meant to be... DB4 soft top? Was a Lancia. That was. But the E-Type got crunched. Oh, right, OK. Oh, I the, thought I was going to catch Guy the out there yeah. and, he, and that you didn't know that the Aston was actually a Lancia. I was more... When I found out it was a Lancia, I think I was more upset. <laughs> I'm not a huge fan of Astons from that era. They're a bit, they're a bit grand touring for my... Do you know what I mean, Guy? Good name for a TV show, though. <laughs> it's probably copyright. Well, right, OK. So the DB5, back in the day, let's imagine that we were sort of, you know, like young men about town in swinging London. I would have much rather had an E-Type. It was a much better car. And for considerably less money. Discuss. Right, let's get back to the... I was thinking about Lanciers. <laughs> Lanciers? Yeah. Have you ever owned one? I raced one. That. See, that's great, isn't it? There we go. Right, tell us about the time. Fulvia you... 1.6 HF. A Fulvia 1.6 High Fidelity. How fantastic. Indeed. And what sort of it was that? Uh, historic circuit racing? Yeah, or, it was. Or rallying? Because, yes. of course, that was a very successful rally car. Wasn't it was. It? Uh, Minari, wasn't it? But no, this was circuit racing. So it was CSCC, HSCC, Top Hat, as it was then. Yeah. Um, all that sort of thing. But it was just fantastic. It, it was. In the wet, going back to E-types, at Mallory Park, we beat uh, an E-type quite comfortably in the wet and, and qualified it and put it on the second row. And in the, you just wanted, you did a rain dance every, <laughs> every race. Everyone's looking at the sky, it's beautiful sun, it's wonderful. Sod that, we want it to rain. <laughs> How fantastic. But it was, that was wonderful. So, you're at an auction, as I say, and I get called out for that. Auction. Auction. That's a, that's a auction. Auction. Yeah, well, guy, I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah. 
I'm from Bury, Lancashire. We don't say we don't say dance, and we don't say auction. We say auction, right? So what you're at the auction, and there's another fella there, and he wants what you want. There's nothing. There's nothing worse when there's one person. You feel like going over and going, "Look, mate." <laughs> why, why are we yeah. doing this? But, of course, that's the nature of the beast, isn't it? That's why it's set up like that, because they want you to, to do your brains in, bidding against each Trying other. Trying to beat the other person. And if you're competitive, you're not going to back down. The problem with this story is that we know the outcome, because he didn't get it, did he? You did. I did. And then sat on it for quite some time. Well, no, I, that's untrue. I printed a few off and had some for myself and sort of sold literally probably half a dozen prints I'd had done. Right. Um, and then just sat on it, looked at them every now and again, and I was sat then, I'd thought for a long time, they should be in the public domain. They're that good, some of them. Mm. They should be out there. People should see it. They're was it, was he a pro photographer? The no, not at all. Them. He right. was an engineer for Westlands in Yeovil. Right. So, uh, or Westland, as it was, wasn't it, before any yeah. of that started. Um, so that, that's where he came from. We traced him back there. He... I think he did trials. We should say Westland was a helicopter company. Mm -hmm. There was a big scandal, and they were also involved, uh, I would know, wouldn't I, with MB Augusta. Well, yeah, because then Uh, it became Augusta Westland, didn't it? Yeah, it was just Augusta. Because some people don't realise that Augusta, the money for the racing motorbikes came from the military operations of the aviation and helicopters and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, Michael Hazeltine had a a bit of a hissy fit over Mm. Westland. He did, didn't he? <laughs> and of course, right. So, uh, right, you'll know this guy. We didn't Google it. We were talking about it earlier. Michael Esseltine's um, publishing company. Yes. What's the name? Um, oh, they publish Classic and Sports Car. Yes, and that's Haymarket. 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 Yeah. Right. Yeah. And Autosport. Right. Yeah, 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 of course. Yeah. Right. I tell you what, some weeks this show is just middle-aged men forgetting stuff. That's what it should be called. <laughs> welcome, instead of Steve's speed shop, it should be, welcome to another episode of middle-aged men forgetting stuff. But between us, we get there. We get there in the end. Yeah, yeah. It takes teamwork. three of us to remember the name of a publishing company who published magazines that we've all been reading for how long? 40 well, years? 40 years. Yeah, yeah. 40 At years. Least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So you sat on them, you sold a few prints, and you yeah. thought, these should be in the, no, pub- half a dozen. the public domain. Is that where he comes into the picture? Yeah, I was sat in a lovely pub. Sorry, I'm pointing, pointing at and, um, Just outside of Wimborne with a mate, and we were talking about directions of life and things like that, post-divorce. And There's a motorbike shop comes in. I think uh, three legs, three legged Three cross. cross. Yeah. Well, they've gone Which now. Were, yeah, Ducati yeah. and all that sort of thing. Motoguzzi, yeah. La Verda. So... Yeah. Went we there, were, went there many times. I may even have gone in that pub with them, with those guys. I would imagine so because yeah. it's a popular locals pub, very small. And um, so he just said to me, "Well, why don't you publish them? Get someone to publish them." He said, "You know people that do it," and was aware of guy. He said, "Right, you make that phone call or text. I'll go and get the beers in, and the rest sort of goes on from there." And and we then sat down in a pub in Brid- another pub in Bridport, and literally sat in the pub looking at these little slides. I like all this talk of business being <laughs> in, done in pubs. In this the is... corner of a darkened pub, mind you, not even a light pub, with no. little lights in the corner squinting at these little sort of one-inch square negatives in cardboard. Do you um, know, remember those viewers that you used to be able to get for slides? Yeah. That you could, like a sort of box, yep. binocular boxy with thing. Lots with lots of big batteries in. Yeah, and a flicker so that you could... Yep, move from once. It was almost like a, a revolver, like a, a gun. Uh, the old um, things you used to put the Viewmaster. That's it. That's it. Viewmaster. The <laughs> they were great, weren't they? You'd have Captain you know Scarlet what? and things. Guess like what? We've got a Viewmaster in the office here. 
That's wow, uh, brilliant. Yeah, Fabrenia. And it's all in 3D. Wow. <laughs> you, get, you get the same image in both yeah. eyes, and it's, it's 3D. Uh, but you used to get the serial ones, so it's a pair of glasses, and you put the thing in. I'll tell you what, super fibre broadband, you can, you can stick it with a sun, don't you? Give me a Viewmaster any day. I've got a Captain Kremen Viewmaster adventure where he goes to the moon with his assistant. Cleo, That's good in 3D. Cleo, Cleo Rockers. Yes. Yeah. Cleo Rockers. We should explain Captain Kremen. Uh, was uh, a character in the Kenny Everett video show. It was on the telly. There, there was something... That, like, so you get to a certain age where things come back and you realise that even people in their 30s have no idea that it's something that's coming back. So I heard the other day somebody on the BBC and it was the person that... I've never seen this show and I got very confused at first because they said there was going to be a show on the BBC called Drag Race, and I got excited because I thought it might be the NHRA. And, <laughs> and live like from Santa Pod. Live from Santa Pod. <laughs> but it wasn't. It was men dressed as women, and the, which is fine. And the person that was say, saying uh, they were pushing the boundaries and that they were challenging this, that, and the other. And I thought, oh, yeah, because I didn't grow, grow up in a Britain where Dick Emery, Kenny Everett, Danny LaRue... The two Ronnies, Stanley Baxter, Larry Grayson, you know, the name somebody who appeared on Saturday Night TV <coughs> who didn't dress up as a woman. It's a shorter list. We grew up in a in a Britain where drag was complete. It was Liz Dawson, Sissy and Ada, <laughs> and they're going, "Yeah, we're pushing the boundaries." And I'm thinking, "You're not pushing my boundaries, pal. You're not even getting close to my boundaries." You know, like when Stanley Baxter came out a couple of weeks ago and said, oh, I'm gay. And we thought, yeah, we all, we've known Really? You. We all knew. It's fine. There's no need to come out. We all knew you were, you know. Anyway, so stuff, what I, my point being is, stuff comes back and you get to a certain edge and you think, oh, yeah, we've been there, we've been here before. I've seen that. Uh, and people go, oh, this is new. And you go, not really. <laughs> But you don't really... It's all right to talk about today. This is our safe place, right? But you don't want to talk about it too much in polite company because they go, old smart arse, old git. You know, cause they, because, you know, if, you, if you're the one who goes, oh, yeah, yeah, we know all about that. And it's it, it, it doesn't... It's all right. Like I said, this is our safe place. We can do it here. But it doesn't necessarily go down well. So, um... Did you did you manage to get in contact with the person who t took the pictures? Because presumably, no, because, a... well, it came from um, this certainly, and I don't know if there's other things, but he passed away because we looked it up. He'd passed away quite a while before. So whether it was someone who cleaned like a house clearance or whatever, I don't know. Someone yeah. cleaning his stuff out because there was a couple of the slides, and the only way I could track him, and this is where you're writing on the slides, he'd sent some in for competitions. So his name was on there, E.V. Right. Star, and his address. Yeah. There was uh, Western so, Supermare and Yeovil, the two addresses on these particular slides. So you then know where it is. It took a while to really find out who he was. I used, to, uh, I used to work in Western Supermare. And uh, for years I worked there. It's where people from Birmingham go to die. It's like round it's, here. In this a beach holiday. In this part, well, in this part of the world, people go to Grange over Sands. And do, you, do you remember there was a, a car dealer in Grange over Sands who used to have sarc He made the national news because, in fact, he made the international news because he, he used to have sarcastic advertising. So he'd have a Metro 1.0 HLE and it'd be, Grange special, never been out of third gear, comes complete with crocheted tissue box, all that sort of stuff. He knew exactly who he was selling cars to. 
old people. <laughs> but he thought, I'm going to have a bit of fun with the adverts. And he, he was he ended up being on, like, Brazilian television and said, in England, there's a sarcastic used car dealer who basically <laughs> extracts the urine out of the people who buy his cars. And I thought, how very British. But Western Supermare, just in case people didn't know, was famous for... Well, John Cleese and Geoffrey Archer, I think, both from both from Western. You try, I'm not sure about Archer, but John Cleese, definitely. Yeah. 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 And yeah. a very big, long slab of sand and mud. And, and, a, be- and a beach and race. A, a beach yeah. race on motorbikes. That's right. Yeah. And when I told Richard Dunwoody, <laughs> and we're in the week after the Grand National, which are... I, I, right, here's the thing that's going to make me sound like... I've picked first and fourth, yeah. Did you? Mm. Well done. Right, so... Um, People didn't half go on about the female jockey, and all credit to her, well done, a great achievement. However, do you know what never got mentioned in all the talk? The damn horse! Right? <laughs> I, I'm going to suggest, call me, you know, call me controversial, I'm going to suggest that the horse has quite a lot to do with horse racing. Because I've seen horse racing where they just had a mannequin. They didn't have a jockey. <laughs> they just had like a mannequin and when the traps went up the horses ran and when they crossed the finish line they sort of stopped you know well, well, you suppose the clue is in it's horse racing I thought I was going to get some support here <laughs> well it's it, yeah, right okay alright it's it, let's go for another diversion oh I think I know which one I'm going to say um, and it's the initials are JB but the driver that's had the biggest advantage, where a driver has won a significant championship and people go, yeah, but that doesn't really count. <laughs> like when Jensen Bottom won the F1 championship. Um, Does anybody actually think that, you know, Jensen Button was the best Formula 1 driver in that or any other year? Well, he must have been for that year. Yes. What do you mean it must have been? It was the damn car. Like I'm saying that... that but Rubens Barrichello's a pretty fair peddler and he didn't come anywhere near him in the same car. Mm. And then there was the whole thing about... Uh, was it Canada, wasn't it? Where he Not the goal. Not the goal. Yeah. I like the guy. But the consensus, maybe not in this room, but generally is when people look at the Formula they go, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Jensen Bolton, that doesn't really count. And then <laughs> they do. But then if, if you, you look at it back in the era I follow, when Alberto Ascari won all but three races in two seasons in Formula 2, when Formula 2 became the World Championship, the contemporary papers were saying exactly the same thing. Mm. Well, Ascari's in the Ferrari. Of course he's going to win. Oh, Ascari's car broke, so Mike Hawthorne won in the Ferrari. Mm. He beat Fangio, Mike Hawthorne, but he was driving a Ferrari. <laughs> so it was the same... And you could go in, in uh, was it 17 or 80, when Schechter won in the Ferrari. He won, I think, won maybe two races. Well, in the bike world, Kenny Roberts Jr. is a former former MotoGP or, or Grand Prix champion. But nobody rates him. It's like, <laughs> it's like again, they go, they go, nice guy, nice guy, met him once. Met his father a few. His father, obviously, a blinking legend. And he said something that shouldn't have then. I've to- Nobody's unaware of the greatness of Kenny, Kenny Roberts, Roberts Sr. Oh. But when people see, some people who kind of like motorbike racing but aren't that into it, when they see his name or he's been interviewed and it says, uh, world champion, MotoGP world people go, Really? I go, yeah, yeah, he won it. <laughs> Did he? Yeah. 
Honestly, he won. <laughs> it's like, oh, right. I mean, at the moment, it's um, Jonathan Reyes won the World Superbike title, like, how many times now? Seven or eight times? I don't know. But I remember the four times that Carl Fogarty won. Because when, with all due respect to Jonathan, when Carl won, there was, you know, there were, there were a dozen guys out there who could win the race. And there was an enormous amount of effort and money and commitment from the manufacturers. Now it's like, uh, oh, yeah, well, Superbike. And, and that, that, some people might find that controversial, but it happens to be true. But it's the same as um, in the book. We go from... The, I like what Guy did there. Did you, you see that, Tim? Yeah. He brought it back. Thank you, Guy. We've got Jim Clark. <laughs> Obviously, there's Jim Clark. At the start of it, we start in 1961. And Jim Clark was on the grid with nine other Grand Prix winners. Yeah. There's nine people who have won Grand Prix or are going to win Grand Prix. So you've got yeah. Phil Hill, Graham Hill, Joe Bonnier, Jim Clark, John Surtees. Um, Tony Brooks is in the last year of his career. It, all these guys are there and they, they'll either go on or they have Jack Brabham. He's a twice world champion. Wow, yeah. He, he's there and they're all there, but Jim Clark comes out of the mix, the shining star. Of course. Yeah. Is that because Jim Clark, as many people would say, was the greatest racing driver ever? Or is it because Colin Chapman had the best ideas for 18 months and the, it dominated? Now, Right, well, there's a reason that Lionel Messi plays for Barcelona and doesn't play for, like, West Brom or uh, Gillingham. It, you know, it's like the best, the best people get the opportunities, except in boxing, where it's all bent. But, <laughs> well, it is. It is. Controversial. Is that it, where you lost your middle tooth? <laughs> I'm missing a tooth at the moment. If, if you can hear a sort of whistling sound... Um, it's not my hearing aid. It, it, I can't see the de- a dentist till Friday. And I tried gluing the damn thing back in, but it's in three It's in three pieces. So I had to first glue it together and then try and glue it in, but it didn't work. As soon as I got drink, it just fell out. Race tape? Gaffer tape? I've got it. Gaffer tape. <laughs> gaffer tape. I'm thinking of having a gold one in the front. What do you think? Are you planning on auditioning for a Bond villain role anytime soon? I'm thinking of living in a caravan. Oh, so. <laughs> It's a shame Phil Newsom hasn't joined us today, isn't it? That's true, by the way. Professor but, Dr Phil. But, um, yeah, so... The person... Yeah, there are some people who... who won and people can't work out why. And there are some people who didn't win... And people can't, like, you know, Jim Clark. Why didn't he have five world championships? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or the the most obvious one of all, Sterling. Mm. And, and, and and the other thing that people do when it comes to Sterling is they always badmouth John Satis, who did it and always gets a, gets a bad rap because they think when he did it on a bike, it was because he was on the best bike. And when he did it in a car, it was because he was in the fastest car. But then surely if you're going to be the best driver, you need to get the timing right and you've got to pick the best car. Yeah, I was so going to say, with Jensen, part the of fact the that he didn't jump ship from Honda when he had the opportunity but kept faith with Honda, which allowed him to have first refusal of the, the, the Braun drive, that makes him a greater tactician at the sport of motor racing as an entire concept. That guy is really interesting. I knew there was a reason you were here. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. It's it's the same as boxing. 
right? So, boxing even more so, I think, in terms of picking fights. You know, you see guys coming through the ranks, but it's all very controlled and it's all very stage-managed. And you realise that it's because everybody, the coach, the manager, the promoters, the TV people, they all want to get certain fighters into a position where they're in certain fights. Like the whole Anthony, Anthony Joshua Tyson Fury thing. That is going to be the biggest money-spinning boxing match in the history of boxing in the UK. And rightly so. They're two amazing world champions. So the last thing you would want is one of them getting sparked out by, by some journeyman slugger. You know, you don't want to see... You don't want what happened with Andy Ruiz happening again, where, like, the chubby Mexican guy gets in and people think... Is that actually the fighter, or is that just, was the did, did is the bit of problem? Did they have to get somebody out of the audience, like when the Who played the Cow Palace in San Francisco, and Keith Moon was indisposed, that they had to get a block from the audience? Did they have to? Did they go? Excuse me, has anybody done any boxing? I am a good boxer. He's a bit big, isn't he? Never mind, he'll have to do. Put these shorts on. Oh, no, they won't fit. Here, try these. You know, and then he sparks Anthony Joshua out, and all through the world of boxing. Everyone who wants to ultimately see that fight with Tyson Fury thinks, oh, this is terrible. Motor racing, not quite the same, is it? And, and, and you were talking about the Jim Clark era, and, and you, Tim, were talking about the slides, Graham Hill and Jack Brabham. And, and I think, wrongly perhaps, and people will hate on me for it, but the guys from the diaspora, the Rhodesians, the South Africans, the Australians, the Kiwis, they really... <laughs> You know, it's kind of Brit... This is a terrible thing, and people will hate me for it. Brits who've been on holiday for a long time. There might be two or three generations of you that have been down under. But, you know, I, I watched a programme um, about bush survival on YouTube, and this guy kept going on about Brits, the Brits, the Brits, the Brits, and yet every single person, when it got to the end credits, was called John Smith, Bill Jones. I thought, you are Brits. Why do you keep going on... You know, just because you've been down there a while doesn't... We've got to edit this bit out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they all, they all had to come. Once they'd proved themselves locally, the Brabhams and the Chris Amons of this world... Sorry, I'm, I'm going to, to Guy, because I know it's his, it's, his, it's his era that he's... They had to come to Britain eventually, didn't they? And they had, to, they had to come to Britain fairly early on, once they'd had a bit of success, because that was a very small pond down there. But remember, that was true of the whole world of motorsport. Britain was the epicentre, or rather Europe was. Let's be fair to the French, the Italians, Europe was the epicentre. Fangio and Gonzalez came over on a publicly funded Driver to Europe programme from the Argentine. Yeah. And um, Bruce McLaren was sent over on a similar thing. You know, Bruce, you're representing New Zealand, son. Do us proud, mate. I do like a man who says, the Argentine. Don't you, Tim? <laughs> well, <laughs> Dilly shows a school, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, but... It, it's got to be proud. So when did it change, Guy? Because I, I was watching something about um, uh, the drivers that came through into F1 in the 90s. A lot of the Brits, the Warwicks, the Herberts of this world, and then people who didn't quite get there, like our good friend Anthony Reid, who kind of went a similar route in the Japanese F3 Championship. And they were all they were all 
in the same championships, more or less. But they were in France, they were in Italy, they were in Japan particularly. And yet, and these were seen, it was almost like you had to come out of carts or wherever you'd come from, usually carts, and then you had to go up the ladder on these rungs. But the rungs weren't necessarily here in the UK. They were in France, they were in Italy, they were in Japan. When, when did that change from having to come to, come to Britain? Quite late. Um, Ninth, late 80s, 90s? Yeah. Senna came to the UK yeah, of and course. couldn't speak a word of English. Um, when he was coming up through, uh, still as Ayrton Senna de Silva, coming up through the junior formula and duking it out with Martin Brundle in Formula 3s and people like that, he, he had to be in England. He came over to the yeah. Jim Russell School. So it's, it's post... Yeah, about 1992, there was a sea change. I think it may coincide with the resurgence or rather the the rise of the Winfield Racing School in France. Yeah. It suddenly became, with trail braking into the apex, instead of doing all your braking in a straight line and turning and carrying speed through, trail braking became the way to do it, left foot braking. And then we were slightly left behind in the UK at that point. And Skip Barber in the, in the in US, States. of course. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And Bob Which Bonham. came first? Was it Jim Russell? I did Jim Russell. Me too. Did you? Yep. Get, get this. Yep. We all did it. Oh, how fantastic. That was one of the best weeks of my life. I can't tell you. I can't remember how much... It, I was at Donington. Were you at Donington? I as did well? Jim Russell yeah, yeah. at Donington with yeah. Johnny Kane, who at the time was struggling in Formula 3, would go on to win his class at Le Mans wow. in the MG Lola. Wow. So I think I got a decent instructor. <laughs> Right, so I had Hamish Gordon and uh, Andy Pardo. Uh, I mean, these guys have taught so many people. You know, I, I was with Hamish at Bista, and it was like one in three people who went by. <laughs> it's like, and you just think, yeah, if you're at a car event and you're a Jim Russell instructor, you probably know a third of the, <laughs> of the people there because thousands of Manly men, again, we have, to, we have to be honest. We could say people, but it was all guys. At our, of, of the generation we're talking about going through Jim Russell, um, I asked the question while I was there, and this is 19, the early 90s, um, you know, is it all just blokes on this course? And the instructor looked at me as if I'd grown a second head and went, yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry, <laughs> stupid me. <laughs> I had a great time because I, I actually got paid to do it. <laughs> Look at that guy's rolling his eyes. I got, I got paid to do it by... Uh, I did it for an in-flight... Cathay Pacific's in-flight <laughs> magazine. I was writing for Arena, which was a sort of posh lifestyle British version of GQ, really. I can remember. Magazine. I've got um, a couple of copies of Arena yeah, still. And they contacted me, and I'd written something for them, and they said, oh, we've got this... Do you want this gig? They rang up and said, have you got journalists? So I ended up doing Jim Russell at Donington for free, which would have been... I mean, it wasn't cheap, was it? Cracky, no. well, like you say, it was, it was thousands of pounds. This was late 80s. And, um, but they put me in the, in the pub where all the instructors stayed. <laughs> I had a great time in Donington, in Castle Donington. And there was, there was all the instructors, there was me. And I'll never forget this. I got quite friendly with this guy. Um, there was this Greek kid... He was, he was the youngest guy on the, on the course, and um, he was useless. He was utterly useless. His dad was like a shipping magnate or something like that. Uh, he was a really nice guy, and I think he was 18 or 19, and he had, and he turned up in it, a Lancia Delta Integrale, and he lived in London. 
can you imagine the insurance? You're, oh. you're, you're foreign. Not that I'm holding it against him, but he was. He was Greek. And he lived in London, 19 years old. Lancy Delta. Can you imagine me the, taking that call for the insurance? Yes, can I just take your details? Hold on a minute. Let me just calculate Thanks your birth. premium. I'll need a calculator. One million pounds! It's like, you know, it's like, can you imagine? It wouldn't happen today, probably. Well, it does, because I've, I've, for reasons that I don't really need to go into, I visit Manchester City's training ground and Manchester United's training ground in the last 12 months, and you see all the cars and you think, how do these young men insure these cars? They're, mm. young, they're young men, and they've not got the greatest record when it comes to... I mean, the BBC took me down to the tunnel underneath the Manchester airport where, was it Cristiano Ronaldo crashed his Ferrari? Yeah. I'm trying to remember who it was. I had to stand next to the tunnel and give my expert opinion for the BBC and go, well, I can't really see any problem with... Uh, apparently, wasn't he racing another player or he saw another player's car? Allegedly. And he booted it. Because they always turn on... They think, oh, I don't need all these driver aids. I'm a professional sports person. I can kick a bag of wind. I'll turn all these things off. Oh dear, I appear to have wrecked my car. Get me another one. But So somebody's insuring those guys, obviously. Yep. But God knows who. United are sponsored by Chevrolet, of course. And so if you go to, if you go past Old Trafford, I'm not telling tales that people um, can't pick me up. If you went past Old Trafford at one point, there were a lot of Corvettes and, and Camaros that they thought the players might drive around in. And they're just in the car park. Because no. it's like they're thinking... Got my GL63 AMG or whatever it is, you know. They're rolling dirty, aren't they? They're not. They're not driving a. They're not driving. I mean, the the indignity of driving a car that costs less than six figures would be just be. It'd be like, you know, they give it to the kids in the youth academy or something like that. Although that new Corvette, amazing. I'm wondering. How, this is a bit of an experiment. I'm wondering how far I can take this away from what we thought we were going to be talking about before you two just get up and walk out. Please don't do that. I want to come back. To, I want to come back to the to the story, which was that you were in a pub in a darkened pub. I like the idea of with being him. in a darkened pub with him, looking at these slides and going, "Do you think there's a book in this?" And you presumably, guy said, "Yeah." Well, it, I'd already done uh, Mintex Man and Mintex Man Relined, which was. The early post-war scene, 50s up to 1962. Yeah. And the earliest image we've used is 1961, so it, it dovetailed perfectly. Different bloke, uh, but the contrast was great because Mintex Man was all about Lionel Clegg, who was there professionally. He worked for Mintex, looking after all the team's clutches and brakes. And he, he took photographs. He took photographs for his own enjoyment, yeah. but he had a pass. He was there. Mm. Evie Starr was there just of his own enthusiasm, yeah. and he was getting even closer mm. than Arnold Clegg was to people. So but that you, was the fascination for me. But you could, of course, and that's the difference, isn't it? Mm. You could never get the access that... Back in the day, people were just allowed to walk up to Jim Clark and take a picture of him, or, you know, say, could you stand next to the car? And he'd probably stand next to the car while you took a picture. And all you, all you are, and I'm not saying all you are in a pejorative way... Because I believe the exact opposite. I think, you know, the paying public are the, the only reason that the sport exists in the way that it does. But you could say, effectively, you could walk up effectively to Lewis Hamilton and say, hey, Lewis, can I get a picture of you? Could you stand next to the car, please? Oh, he signed my autograph book. And he wouldn't dream of saying no. Wouldn't dream of it, would they? 
back in the day. Although there might have been some drivers that told people to F off, were there, Guy? There were. Um, Who was the naughtiest? It depended on the context. Oh, right. It, it depended entirely on the context. I believe Graham Hill could be quite brusque. Graham could be prickly. Um, Fangio could. Oh, right. If Fangio was in the zone, as we'd call it now, and he was sat in his car thinking his way around the lap, because Fangio famously reckoned you only need three laps, you do one lap to go out and get up to speed, one lap to ace it, and then you come back having a slowing down lap. And that's all Fangio did for, for training, right. as they called it then. And nine times out of ten, he was faster than everybody else on his three yeah. laps. Uh, so if you interrupted Fangio's train of thought, he could be very dismissive right. in a very Argentinian way. And could he, did he pull the men or speak of the English uh, type? Well, uh, he didn't speak. Well, he always maintained he didn't speak English, but Sterling told me that he spoke. Yeah, of course he did. He understood <laughs> And when we say who was the most media-friendly in the modern sense, Sterling kind of pioneered that, or he sort of invented it, Sterling really, Sterling made he? a point of being available. Yeah. And that was because he... Although <clears throat> Mike Hawthorne, who beat him to the World Championship in '58, Mike had his endorsements for razor blades, for tyres, for disc brakes, for various motoring products... And Did they not sell bow ties? Now there'd be a range of Mike Hawthorne bow ties, would. wouldn't there? But um, Sterling was essentially the world's first professional yeah. racing driver in the way we'd understand it. And he's he bestrides... Who's the American equivalent? Is it is it Richard Petty or <clears throat> AJ Foyt? No, AJ Foyt was legendarily prickly, wasn't he? Legendarily he'd, prickly. He'd like, not just prickly... He'd punch you in the teeth, wouldn't he? <laughs> like, Richard, as soon as look at you. Richard the King Petty has time for everybody. And Big Daddy Don Garlitz, who is still setting world records now. And Don Garlitz was first world champion in drag racing in 1958. So the same year Mike Hawthorne won the Formula One World Championship, Don Garlitz won the f drag racing world championship. He was the first man to do 200 miles in the quarter, first man to do 300 miles in the quarter, and he's still working on being the first man to do 200 miles in the quarter in an electric dragster. That's unbelievable. And Doc Big Daddy, I I've met him, I know him, uh, I know the family. If you go to his museum and he's there working, you need to attract his attention because, surprise, surprise, he's stone deaf after right. 60 years of sitting next to Hemi engines yeah. on full chat. He will sit and he'll talk to you. He'll tell you stories. If you're interested, he'll engage with you. Wow. And I can't imagine um, any other... Do you call him Big Daddy? Yeah. Hey, Big Daddy. Big Daddy. <laughs> hey, Big Daddy. Um, and Which... that comes from... He was from Florida. All the hot rodders were from the West Coast, from California. Yeah. And he drove his car on a trailer all the way across America to California and won at every track. And one of the commentators says, well, who's the Big Daddy now, then? And it's Great, yeah. Big Daddy, Don Gorrans. Yeah, yeah. But he, he, he got the importance of, exactly as you said, Steve, it's the fans who put me where I am, who yeah. pay their dollar, and they need to be listened to, yeah. which um, is exactly why the book is called Admission 7 and 6, because yeah. that's the yeah, ticket yeah, on again. the cover. Yeah. And that's what all it cost... EV star to go and get the photos mm. at that international trophy meeting. Mm. Seven shillings and sixpence. It's funny, isn't it? Because, well, no. It, it is a point that's been made a million times, but I'm, it's not going to stop me from doing it, as regular listeners will know. Um, back in the day, taking a photograph was a fairly serious undertaking, wasn't it? Each mm. The cost of each time you click the shutter 
was so much greater than it is today, where there is no cost. You just press the button on your phone, it takes a picture. As somebody who was keenly interested in photography myself and worked for the first sort of five or six years in what I sometimes call my career as a photographer, I was only too aware of how much it cost to take a picture. And to take a slide cost even more, didn't it? And it was the wastage, yes, because of the developing and the and also the time span, how long it took to get things back. There was no instant, oh, it's there, that's rubbish, I'll edit it, I'll put another one in. It and that's was, been a lot of the problem with mm. doing the book, because you would assume he shot a full film at each event, but sometimes he didn't. And so... You'd, if, he, if it was a late-season event in 1967, say, then he did five or six shots at the spring, you know, the Easter Sunday, the Whit Monday meeting, and then he got it developed. It come back with the date stamp in the mount of the slide. Yeah. And you'll go, oh, this was taken in early 1968. From Look, Boots the Chemist. It can't be, because he's <laughs> but, <yeah>. dead. <laughs> that bloke was dead by then. But so you happened. then have to work back wow. to when he was actually taking the pictures. Doing the, looking through the ones for the 70s, we're working on now... There's a whole stream of photos, and it's clearly Monza, and it's written on there, Monza, and you can work out, having been there, you know exactly where they are. I looked at the date. They didn't run Monza in April. The Italian Grand Prix, to my knowledge, mm. has never been in April. And it, uh, whatever it was, 1973, I think, the, the date mark on it is, that can't be right. So I've gone back. These are from the previous year. But it's when it's he September got them developed. Time. Yeah. Exactly. So they sat are, around for months. These are four or five months old, these slides, yeah. by the time he's got them developed. Maybe Christmas was a bit pricey that year. Or maybe, <laughs> I don't know. Um, put his camera away. Uh, this is what we're looking at for the 70s one, because obviously his career had, had advanced more at Westland. What was going on in his professional mm. life then that might have stopped him engaging in his hobby for yeah. four months? Yeah. Were they developing the links at that time? Was there something really big and new happening was it the second upgrade of the sea king that western had the contract for so i flew a lot in lynxes when i was, was when i was a army cadet I flew a lot in lynxes and i flew in the previous uh, helicopter that the army and the uh, the army uh, air corps used and it, that was a massive the lynx was the lynx was an amazing aircraft compared to what went what went before it was like being in a garden shed or the wasp or something wasn't it? well it's the the gazelle well we went in gazelles but a gazelle was a much smaller helicopter it was a, a business helicopter than mm. the army they took made too many of them. it's a lovely story about a race they used to take us gazelles. they used to take us joyriding in gazelles it's a long time ago and because we were young lads they knew the, the stuff that they did those pilots buzzing power lines and going under bridges and all that all that carry on so you know you get a 14 year old cadet in and it's like right pull that thing tight <laughs> and off you went Bro. and it was like yeah but the first time i fl then flew in a no a scout was the other one the western, was scout, the western scout, scout, yes. scout yeah yeah so the first time i flew in a lynx having been in scouts unbelievable it was like wow it wasn't like cortina to sierra it was like ford anglia to Mon last last generation Mondeo. It was that different in terms of, you know, how fast it was, how quiet it was, how smooth it was, how quickly it climbed, how its airspeed, all that sort of stuff. I was only a kid. What do I know? I tell you what. It was the thing was I'd been a Boy Scout, and I'm not knocking the Boy Scouts, right? But I was at some thirteen, and I'm at the grammar school, and uh, my mate says to me, uh, "What did you do last night? Uh, did you watch such and such?" No, I was at the Scouts. I think we were doing knots or something like that. We were looking at 
we were looking at like reef knots and sheaf knots and all that sort of stuff. And my mate said to me, if you go to the drill hall, they'll let you fire a gun. And I went, no. And I went, not a real gun, an air gun. They went, no, a real gun. I went, what night? Do they, you can go on Wednesdays. Tonight, go tonight. So I went to the drill hall in Bury, which is one of the centres for the Fusiliers, the Royal Regiment of Fusiliers, one of the most decorated regiments of the British Army. Six VCs before breakfast at Gallipoli and all that carry on. And uh, I turned up and I went in. I just, like, intimidating. I'm 13. Giant drill hall. The castle armoury at Bury. Giant reinforced door. Knocked on the door. What do you want? Uh, my mate says that if you come here and join the let you shoot a gun. Yeah, come in. Like that. <laughs> So I went in, and it was such a... This was the way that everything was done back then, wasn't it? And I'm, I'm still not sure whether this is a good thing or a bad thing, because it was one of those situations where... This was the 70s, and so they went, how old are you? And I went, 13. And the guy went, 14? I went, 13. How old are you? 14. Oh, yeah, I'm 14. Right, OK. And that was the way so many things were done, wasn't it? If, for some reason, you're... You didn't, you weren't the right age, you weren't the right size. Whatever it was, whether it was joining the cadets or, or anything to do with race, like how many people raced or, or stuff like that where it was like uh, they'd ask them if they had a certain, you got any experience or whatever, and yeah, yeah. People just used to make a snap decision and in a way that doesn't really happen now, they'd just write a figure down, wouldn't they? Well, who was and the, um, was it Alan Stacey who had only one leg? <laughs> yes. yeah, he, he genuinely would go to he was a formula one driver for got, Lotus. how many legs have you got no, uh, they, one he, two was that mate he'd be having the medical <laughs> and he'd cross his good leg over his bad leg and they do the old hammer <laughs> test. and sterling or innis island would distract, would the, distract doctor. the doctor <laughs> and he'd go oh you've crossed your legs again yes and do the other one genuinely guy you're making that up no, no. that didn't happen that did and so there are doctors, possibly some of them are still alive around the world. Being spoofed who by a one-legged a man by a one-legged... Who passed a one-legged racing driver. That's a fantastic story. But, like I say, I don't know if it was good or bad, but they said, how old are you? 13, 14. Oh, yeah, 14, 14. Right, OK. Right, um, sit there. Um, somebody will come and tell you what to do in a minute. So I'm sat in this chair looking out across the incredible polished, immaculately polished uh, hall of the, the drill hall in Castle Armory in Bury, and a corporal like a, an adult corporal walked past me and went, what are you doing there, get upstairs like this, and I went, oh right, okay I didn't, I didn't you know, argue with the guy, he just said go upstairs, ten minutes later I'm firing an, a gun, an actual I'm 13 years old, I'm firing an actual gun, there's a hell of a kick, and a bullet is going down 50 yards down this, because it was the whole, the, the shooting range was the whole length of the Castle Armoury, right down to the other end and putting holes, which, if it was a person, would kill them stone dead. And I'm thinking, this is better than doing knots. <laughs> this is, <laughs> knots wasn't as good as this. You, you're like this then. In Dorchester, where I live, there was an underground shooting range that was used by gun clubs and the TA and people like that. So this has now been turned into a gym. Right. So there's tunnels, and people are now down there, the length of this thing, and even you get people going there, what was this then? It was a shooting range. Now, like, how did you... But it's underground. It's, in, it's domed. It's like sort of yeah. caves. And everyone's going, well, why have you put a gym underground there then? But who knows? But they've kept the shooting range. 
and it's just underneath the town. Well, many years ago, I was in Hereford, <laughs> which it's is... Hereford Gun Club. I, mm. I like Herefordshire and, and that. I remember we, uh, my partner said to these guys that I was working with, Hadrian and Mark, great guys, uh, that's still down there in Hereford. And, of course, there's a very famous part of the British Army who are, um, you know, residents in that part of the world. Although, did they consider themselves part of the army? We're talking about the SAS, basically, mm. right. So Hereford is strange and different in all kinds of ways. Like, if you're in Hereford and you spend any amount of time there, if you hear a dull explosion, no one... Like, if you're in the town centre and you hear... So you're walking around Hereford and you're going in Marks and Spencers and you hear... <clears throat> like that in the distance. Nobody bats an eyelid. They go, oh, it's just a lot. Like, you think, that was a massive explosion. What the hell's going on? But anyway, so I'm... We're in the pub having a meal in Hereford. I think it's called the Black Art heart the black heart and we're in this pub eight and all of a sudden we hear gun like the crack of gunfire and there's a shooting range in the pub and there's a <laughs> shooting match going on and the separation between and we when we went and looked later on they were shooting at targets that were inside a giant lorry tire so that and then the whole thing was was like a almost like a cove in a photographer's studio at the other end where the targets were the separation between the diners and the shooting competition was a curtain. <laughs> a velvet curtain. <laughs> like, we're sat there, eating, you know, they're saying, um, how, how is everything? Is yeah? And we're like, oh, okay, like the shots, like sort of people going, oh, good shot, all that sort of stuff. And they thought, oh, but there's got to be some separation between the people. I've got some curtains. <laughs> Will that be all right? Yeah. <laughs> Heavy duty Draylon. But there is, there's a point to this. Like, people are listening to thinking, there's no, oh, they've stopped listening. But the, the thinking, there's got to be a point to this. And the, the point is this things that were acceptable back in the day, 13 year old lads firing guns with, with zero experience and lied about my age, all that sort of stuff. But, you know, it was the making of me, that sort of thing. I mean, you know, like, by the time we, we talked about. I'd say I flew quite a lot in lynxes and gazelles and scouts and all that sort of stuff. Fired guns, drove a tank, blah, 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 blah. By the time I was 15, and it kind of, you know, it, you grow up quick if you're, if, you're, if you're in that sort of world. And you're better placed to deal with the sort of, you know, what life might have to throw at you. I remember when I started going to uh, cover motor racing and being in the pits and taking pictures, and I... It, People's reaction the first time they were they were in that environment, they would be physically upset and alarmed by the noise and the sort of stuff that was going on. I mean, you know, racing motorcycles, unrestricted race cars, and, and particularly in, in drag racing. I, mean, I remember uh, covering Top Fuel for the BBC, and I'd have to warn people, I'd have to say, this might not be for you. And people would get a bit upset, but then I remember one guy, and he couldn't he couldn't go near the cars, the cameraman, he couldn't go near the cars. Yeah. People don't realise that a top-fuel drag racer, when it's operating, is an intimidating machine. I mean, just, you know, even if you're used to F1 cars or stuff like that, they're, they're literally, literally shaking the ground. And, and they told me, the, the crew had told me, they said, some people have... Voided their battles. Mm -hmm. 
when the car's fired up because it's so loud. It's loud to a degree that, that that's almost unbelievable. How did we get onto this? <laughs> but I, I, I'll give you a noise story. I, um, it was one of the first bona fide press passes I'd got. And it right. Was, um, so when when was this, Tim? Oh, this was probably about twelve years ago. Right. Um, at Monza, the FIA uh, F1 historic racing. Right. I'd signed on, done all my bits and pieces, got me yellow tabard. I'd done some stuff in practice, and then this, so this was race day. This was on the Sunday. I took myself to the end of the straight where they've got the chicane so I can get them bouncing across the curbs. Hands in pockets. I've got my earplugs. So I'm probably from here to just the other side of where we are here, the window. The armco's where the wall is here. And these cars, Cosworth, are just nailing it as they come out of the chicane. Couldn't hear for two days afterwards, if not longer, because <laughs> I'd forgotten my earplugs. <laughs> But I didn't complain. It was like, well, that's quite a... It's like a battle scar. It's quite good. I quite enjoyed it. And you're just getting these guys coming over. But the best part was then, for the rest of the day, I didn't hear anyone moaning at me if I got in the wrong place and somewhere I shouldn't have been. Well, I, I went to Paul Ricard to uh, have a go in... Not have a go, but be a passenger in that. Do you remember that F1 Espace that Renault built? Yeah, like Ford Supervan, yeah, Renault yeah, and Williams did, twice did, uh, with two different transits, yeah. didn't they? Yeah, yeah but the, the F1 Espace was a different beast. It was uh, the Supervan had a Cosworth DFV in it, didn't it? But mm-hmm. um, it was a road legal vehicle that could be raced. The Espace F1 was basically a Le Mans minivan. <laughs> it was. It wasn't. It, there was nothing road about it. It was pure race. It was a lot faster than Supervan. And um, we went there, and Eric Bernard was the uh, was the was the driver, and it was my thirtieth birthday. I'll never forget it. We flew into we flew to Paul Ricard, and I'd said uh, on a private plane, and I'd said for Renault that Renault had chartered, and I hadn't taken my passport because I said where are we going? And they said uh, I don't know why I hadn't taken my passport, but they said. I know why, because they said, we're going to Paul Ricard. I said, are we going anywhere else? No, we're flying in and flying out. I said, well, OK. So I didn't take my passport. We land on the infield at Paul Ricard, and there's, like, two uniformed, like, French passport people sat at a trestle table in the middle of the, <laughs> in the middle of this field. <laughs> Best bud. Like, we're not leaving. So I had to sign all this, you know, there was bureaucracy, all this, all the sort of things that Brits... You know, Brits think, oh, you know what they're like abroad. It was, it was every every horrible cliche of, oh, there are rules. You must. I'm going. We're, we're, go, we're going in like four hours. We're not leaving this circuit. I had to stay in the infield, and then there was a debate about what happens if there's an accident and he has to go in an ambulance or not. And they're honestly having this conversation, and I'm thinking, God. Look, I feel like saying, look, I don't want to stay here. I don't really like your country. I want to go home. I want to go Which is not true. I love France, but the French, it's a great country, but, you know. Anyway, so I'm in the the Espace F1 with Eric Bernard, and we're recording, and there's a camera, and and I'm carrying the sound recording equipment. I'm cradling it. Because the sound recorder's theory is that he's put it in... A, he's got a baking tin, and then back at Pebble Mill, he's gone in the workshop and he's cut out this form so that he can, like, slot it into this 
form in this baking tin and he wants me to hold the baking tin because he thinks this is the only way that he's going to get any decent sound out, out of the whole thing. So uh, we're in the car, we're in the vehicle, and uh, Eric Bernard's running through the controls. He's going, this is for the, the, the how you say, the, the pump de fuel, all the, you know, he's giving it all that. And I said, what's that one? <laughs> and I, I, I pointed and almost touched it. And he went, no, 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 no. Because, of course, what it was was the fire extinguishers. Because, <laughs> of course, because you were inside with that engine and everything, it was completely enclosed. They thought uh, Williams, Renault Williams, who, you know, there was a debate as to exactly who was involved in which part of it. I think they just, Williams, the race car team had just built the whole thing, the whole thing. But it was fully equipped with extinguishers, like, throughout. And I was... My my finger was hovering. All I had to do was touch it. And they would have just... Oh, the, the whole thing would have just filled up with foam. But I didn't. But my point being... And there is a point, honestly. Truthfully, there is. Being in, being in an enclosed space with that engine was mind-blowing. Mm. I mean, you know, it's mind-blowing enough when it's out in the open... But we were inside a carbon fibre box with it, and of course, when I got back and gave the sound recorded to the to equipment to the to the record sound recordist, as you would give the sound recorded equipment to the sound recordist rather than the cameraman or the uh, the PA or whoever uh, or the bloke who was doing the catering, it had just shut down as soon as the as soon as the noise began. It had just shut down. So he had a mini disc, a personal. Do you remember a mini disc? God. A yep. personal mini disc recorder. We tried that. As soon as the vehicle started to move, the the noise, the vibration, all the everything just shut down and started skipping. So he said, "I've got, I've got my ewer. I've got." He shouldn't have had it. He wasn't. It was against BBC policy. But he had some old school reel to reel. Real to real sort of tape recorder, like something out of a Harry Palmer movie, like out of the Ipcrest file or something like. Oh no, Mission Impossible! Mission Impossible! Yeah, yeah the one that used to like it had sort of it go up in smoke. He had one of those. Worked great. <laughs> Worked great because, of course, it wasn't digital and it had no failsafe. It didn't go. Oh, this is a bit loud. It just sort of recorded the madness. God. Yeah, it's great. Never forget that. <laughs> so the book's out. Uh, Admission three and six or what? Seven, seven, and six. Six. seven and six. Good lord! Came yeah. out in November, didn't? Yeah, yeah. we launched it yeah. at the end of November, and as we sit here recording in April, we've got less than a hundred left of them. Which we're quite chuffed about. Yeah. So when when something, I mean, it's right up my strasser, But when when something this specialist, when you do it like that, are you are you looking at a world market, or is it very much is it very much Britain? Australia, New Zealand, is it the emp the old empire that we that's have sold it to the States, right. to France, Belgium, Holland, Germany, Denmark, Cyprus. Cyprus. This may be more detailed than I was looking for, guy. <laughs> so the the quick answer, which I haven't given you, is no, it's it has appeal wherever people yeah. have high octane racing fuel mm. running through their veins. Yeah. And what and there's something about that era isn't there where the cars look great the drivers look great everybody looks so everybody everybody's so damn slim aren't they well, it all, it everyone looks as well cool yes. and great yeah. and accessible the cars look amazing there's no horrible 
cup noodle or durex or whatever you know it's just the cars everyone looks elegant even the mechanics and the sort of you know the journalists have got like press in a, mm-hmm. in their trilby hat and big old sort of pretty much like cameras armbands and things. Yeah. yeah that's actually one of my it's not in the book because it's the wrong era but it's one of my favorite motor racing photographs of all time is i think it's tiff's uh durex sponsored car tiffany Monaco, Nell's, yeah. tiffany Dell, and it's across the road coming out of what used to be lowe's hairpin and was station hairpin before that and it's across the road and it's the, the funny thing is that all four tires are flat right <laughs> The rubber you can't rely on. Indeed. <laughs> well, we would. Uh, we would. I was at a, a, a get together. I won't say when. Of uh, motor racing uh, type petrol heady people, and there was a guy there, and amongst his collection, he had three Skull Bandit sponsored racing bikes. But get this. He didn't know what skull bandits were. Me and another guy had to say to him, well, "Chewing tobacco." Chewing, chewing tobacco. Tob- yeah, yeah. Chewing tobacco. And he was. This is a guy who isn't sure of racing bikes. He's got a huge. And he was like, "Yeah, he, a cool livery." Because we were talking about cool liveries. We were talking about you know what what was good, what was bad. Obviously, there were some that were. Uh, I mean, I always remember British Superbikes Cadbury's Boost. It's sort of, you know, it's a chocolate bar. It's kind of, and it's purple, so they had to race purple chocolate bar livery motorbikes. And yet it worked with Silkat Jaguar. The purple livery then was really good, and is and is one of the defining liveries of right. the group. Well, okay, what's yep. the coolest? It's it's really really obvious. What is uh, right? Okay, I'll take it out of the equation. Apart from Martini, because Martini is the coolest, right? It's it's instantly evocative of sort of glamour and sophistication and the jet set and all that stuff. Plus, it looked great on the cars. So apart from Martini, because because I've got I've got straight away I've got one, but a lot of people would say, well, that's wrong, and you you know. Well, allegedly, forty percent of people who are not followers of motor racing still believe that JPS are involved in yes. Formula One. Yeah, yeah, the John Player Special Lotuses, yeah, black yeah. and gold. Yeah, it's a gloriously it distinctive livery. Yeah, golf as well, and a mole. Yeah, well, golf's golf's good in a way. Greta wouldn't like it, would she? Because you know, well, no. the killing the planet, but, and all that. Yeah, yeah I mean, Marlborough. Is well, Mar- when Marlborough went because you had Marlborough BRM. Look, the in cars R. look great. They yeah. did. I know they smoking. Like ki- I know smoking kills people, including James Hunt probably, and Barry Sheen almost certainly. certainly. But the cars look great. But if you think the silk cut cars, the Marlborough cars, and the JPS cars were in an era when in the UK you had to take the words off. You still knew what yeah. the cars were. Yeah, of course you did, because the graphic identity was so strong. The, but like the graphics, like yeah. guys say, the ultimate is their JPS, where people think JPS mm-hmm. was a was the was the racing team, well, not the not the sponsor. Well, B- it, BAT it was, was British American Tobacco. Yeah, and the five 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 logos on <laughs> Scooby Doo World Championship Rally cars. No one in this country knows that 555 is the leading brand of cigarettes yeah. in Japan. Yeah, of course they do. Except didn't. it is. Yeah. But then you can also throw into the equation their embassy. Grand which Hill. Which is particularly simple. Yeah. And they're still in historic racing. I forget, um, 
Daniels, I think his surname is. Can he you still, still... Got a mock up at the truck, the oh. racing truck? But, but can you run in historic with with period uh, advertising if it's for tobacco or alcohol? I think if you can yeah. prove that that particular that car, car that ran mm. with that logo, which is why collections like the EV Star collection mm. become doubly important because people have never seen their cars in period events before. It's funny, isn't it? Like, in Europe, <clears throat> we're used to, whether it's cars or bikes, it being sort of cool grown-up stuff like, uh, you know, grown-up stuff like ciggies or alcohol or condoms or whatever. Whereas in the States, when you look at NASCAR, it's all mum-and-pop stuff, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It's kind of... Soft drinks and things. Soft drinks, yeah. chocolate bars. It, it's not... I wonder why. I wonder why that is. Maybe it reveals... Because it, it, it's not that, you know, some people might say, oh, well, that's because NASCAR's way more blue-collar. But American open-wheel racing is also sponsored by... It is. ...more mom-and-pop stuff than, than the sort of European... Uh, Talking to, again, Big Daddy Don Garlitz, he refused... Hey, Big Daddy. ...to ever be sponsored by either cigarette companies or alcohol. Yeah. And he turned down... In 1976... Miller. The Miller cars look great in NASCAR. Do. But great. in 1976, he was offered $12 million... What? ...the bicentennial year, 76, if he would carry Budweiser. Right. The king of beers, the king of the drag strip... I was going to say, well, made in heaven. that's not and really... he said no. That's not really alcohol, is it? <laughs> he said <laughs> it's a soft drink. <laughs> if you're German or Czech or Russian... But if you're, if you're Russian, it is, it is a soft drink. Right, so I'm drinking. I've got to tell you my favourite sort of drinking with Russian store... Well, it's Ukrainians, actually. Ooh, I don't know whether we should go there. Right, so I'm drinking with these Ukrainians. I've brought up with a lot of Ukrainians and Poles. I've brought up Catholic in Manchester. And a lot of... Uh, my school was full of... Uh, second generation Poles, Ukrainians, well, so I grew up with them. And um, we were watching football, and some of his cousins, brothers, whatever, not sure who these guys were. Nice guys, we had a great time, not sure where they were from. Didn't speak much English. And they were drinking straight vodka. We were watching Manchester United on a massive telly, and they were just drinking vodka. They were pouring it out of a, just straight out of the bottle into a sort of short but quite, quite sort of, thin glass and just necking it like it was like it was nothing so after i had about three glasses of this i thought i can't i can't do this I'm, i can't just drink vodka it's two, two things one i'm getting massively drunk and two don't even i'm not even enjoying it because it tastes horrible it tastes like lighter fluid so um i said to the guy i can't i can't so he went oh i've got an idea so he went in the kitchen and he came back with a big glass and i thought i thought oh great it's it's a traditional Mancunian beverage. It's Vinto. You are aware, both aware of mm. Vinto, yeah, yeah. It's made in Manchester. Where I live, opposite, it's called Vinto Gardens. It's now housing estate, which is where the factory used to be in Salford. So I thought, it's Vinto, it's a fruit cordial. No, what it was, because I said to him, what's that? And uh, he said, it's half red wine, half vodka. And so one of the Ukrainian guys said something to him, and he spoke back to him in, in their language. And I said, what did you... And they all started laughing. And I said, come on, what's, what's so funny? And I said, I told him I was giving you half wine, half vodka. And he went, oh, yeah, like back in the old country when you get a drink for a child or a woman. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was a 
massive glass, half red wine and half vodka. Oh, yeah, the sort of drink a child. And I thought, yeah, but this is why, this is why when you go on YouTube or whatever and you go, uh, Russian dash cam footage. <laughs> <laughs> There's those horrific accidents where somebody in a larder river attempts an overtaking <laughs> manoeuvre in a, in a blizzard and ends up embedding themselves in the front of a, of a Korean-built heavy goods vehicle or something like that. Good Lord. Right, so uh, that's more or less it. I'm not going to try that drink. Oh, no, <laughs> wherever we go this evening, we're not trying... <laughs> Half red wine, half vodka. Some Ukrainian restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> Normally, at, at this point, as we sort of bring things to a close, it's you kind of say, um, yeah, so what have you got next? But because this was kind of, it's almost like the motor equivalent, motorist equivalent of Blair, which sort of found footage, mm-hmm. isn't it? You found these slides and, and you thought more people should see them. So there's not necessarily a follow-up, unless, of course, you've, found, is, you've um, found some other stuff. Th- is it three or four? We've got... We, so there'd be two volumes for the 70s. And two 70, for the 80s. 74. Right. Um, and then 75, which is obviously the rush years or the, you know, the, the what's your years. F- what's your favourite picture out of all the ones that were in the collection? Of the 60s one, it's the close-up of Chapman and Hill. Well, of the seventies one, God, um, probably, and it's a bit of an anoraki one. The uh, the, Tyr- right. the, the Tyrrell P thirty four car in at, when it was launched or sent out as a test car at the Daily Express International at um, at Silverstone in its in April in a format it had never ever been raced in before or up. It never was the first time it raced, but the fourth. The, the nose cone, the whole shape of it was completely different. So there's so few pictures of that, mm. but it's a bit of an anarchy one. I think for me, it's... I didn't ask Guy, but do tell me. I will. <laughs> I, I am the co-author of the book. Um, I can tell you what he's one of from the 60s, I think. It's, he's getting prickly, though, like AJ Foy. I think he might hit me. There's a picture <laughs> of Jim Clark. He, I, I think he's just come back in. And he's wearing his Herbert Johnson crash helmet. It's before the classic Jim Clark bell, so it's early. It's a British racing green lotus. He's wearing pale blue overalls with his mm. BRDC badge. So cool. And he's just looking up at the crew, beaming. Yeah. He's obviously just loved the qualifying yeah. session in the car. For me, the first half of the 70s is the Mike Wilds shot. Second half well, of the 70s. Well, in 76, yeah. In the 70s. Um, because we both know Mike and we've talked to him and we showed it to him and his reaction to seeing it, it's coming down the hill at, at Brands Hatch what and he's clearly like? having a really serious amount of work to try and control this three-litre V8 Formula One beast. Well, would you call it a beast? He didn't qualify, bless him. But that's why. <laughs> because it was a beast. Because it was a beast. <laughs> Sorry, what, Mike, if you're listening. What a great place. Thanks, guys. It's been really great to, to talk to you. One last thing, um, availability of the, of the book. Admission 7 and 6 is available if you... Facebook, Douglas Lovage Publications. It's £40 or £45 in the UK, plus including postage. We can send it anywhere in the world. There's less than 100 left, as I said, or you'll find it online with Horton's booksellers, Cotswold Maps and, uh, sorry, Cotswold Road and Race, and with Chaters, Chater and Scott as well. So quality motor racing book dealers have it. Marvellous. That's it for another edition of Steve's Speed Shop. If you want to listen to it again, don't worry, there's always the podcast, or you can listen to it here on Fab. There's a repeat on Saturday. See you next week.